Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 75 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live.com. I want to thank everybody at 75 Live letting me come on every Sunday as I do to talk to you for the next half hour about my favorite playwright in the world, William Shakespeare and his works. My name is Shannon Riley. I am not a Shakespearean scholar, but I am a devotee of Shakespeare. And I like to come on the air and talk about his works and invite you to share your thoughts with me, too. And you can do that by reaching out to me at ShannonJRiley.com. Send me an email, Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Also, if you've missed any of these episodes so far, they are being archived both on 75's website, but as well on my website, ShannonJRiley.com. And you can catch up on any past episodes. Speaking of which, I got a lot of comments about last week's episode on King John, and I really appreciate that. A lot of people were very excited to learn about a Shakespearean play they honestly had never heard of before. So it was uh, really cool to get the response that I got. So thank you to all of you who reached out to me about that particular episode. If you missed it, again, it's archived at ksefdigitalradio.com. Today, we're going to be talking about one of Shakespeare's greatest hits, a magical, unbelievable romp through the forest known as A Midsummer's Night Dream. This is one of the biggest Shakespeare shows to contemporary audiences today. We don't know how it was necessarily received in Shakespeare's time, but I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. However, there's no play suited better for a spectacle of the modern stage than Midsummer's Night Dream, and you see that in a lot of the film versions and stage versions that are out there. Of course, in Shakespeare's time, they didn't have all of this magical theater equipment. They had to do it with words, and Shakespeare's language here is sublime. It's one of his best plays. And as a sample of that, how about we turn it over to my boy who says... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, and there are a lot of different quotes we can uh, focus on from Midsummer's Night Dream. It's one of the most quotable shows. 
You could do The Course of True Love Never Did Run Smooth. That's from Act 1, Scene 1. Or Things Base and Vile, Holding No Quality. Love Can Transpose to Form and Dignity. Love Looks Not with the Eyes, But with the Mind. Act 1, Scene 1. But of course, my favorite is Lord, What Fools These Mortals Be from Act 3, Scene 2. Midsummer's Night Dream is one of those plays that even today you can read pretty easily. As a matter of fact, in the 18th century, they considered it much more of a play to read than to perform. The language is so rich, the story is so good, and you're going to be able to follow it so cleanly. So if you haven't read A Midsummer's Night Dream, I encourage you to do it. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis because some of you may have forgotten what happens in the story, even though I think it's uh, roughly familiar to you. But I can't do all of the language as Shakespeare did, so go back and, and read it or listen to it yourself. There's some great versions of it online, uh, and there's also uh, some wonderful film adaptations. But I'm going to start off, first of all, by giving you just a real quick synopsis so you can kind of know what's going on in the play. First of all, the play takes place in Athens. Uh, all of Shakespeare's plays, except for his histories, take place somewhere other than England and usually close to the Mediterranean. Anything Greek, anything Roman, anything Italian was very popular with the Elizabethan audiences and with Shakespeare himself. So, we're at Athens and a great war has just ended. The Athenians had defeated the Amazons in war. Their ruler, Theseus, in fact, is about to marry the Amazon queen Hippolyta. Now, some versions of the show that I've seen treat Hippolyta like she is a captive woman, like she's been arrested, a slave perhaps, or even just been conquered in war. I don't like this attitude, simply because Shakespeare doesn't write her that way. She seems just excited about the wedding that is about to come as Theseus himself is. So it's a loving story from the very top. They're just a few days away from their wedding, it's spring, and they can't wait until they are finally married. But in the middle of their joyous walk through a garden, they're approached by a lord by the name of Aegeus. And Aegeus is angry at his daughter Hermia, since she refuses to marry the man he has picked for her, Demetrius. Instead, she wants to marry Lysander. So the couple is brought before Theseus, and Theseus says, All right, your father has decreed you are to marry Demetrius. What say you? And she says, No, I would rather die than marry Demetrius. Demetrius pleads his love and begs her to reconsider, but she refuses, and Lysander continues to insist that he is the better match for her. Finally, Theseus says, you have one day to consider what your father wants. If you don't do what your father has decreed, I will unfortunately have to put you to death and off Theseus, Hippolyta, and Aegeus and Demetrius go. Lysander and Hermia are distraught, particularly Hermia, but Lysander has an idea. He wants them to escape under cover of night and run off into the woods. They'll, on the other side of the woods, he will go to a relative and they will be married there. And after they're married, there's nothing the king or her father can do about it. She agrees to this plan. And just then, her childhood friend, Helena, enters. Helena is also distraught because she herself is madly in love with Demetrius. And Demetrius wants nothing to do with Helena. So Hermia says to her dear friend, Don't worry, I'll soon be out of his sight. We're running off into the woods tonight to get married. And she and Lysander depart. Helena, for some reason, decides she will go and tell Demetrius of this. And maybe telling Demetrius of this, he'll find love for her for being so honest and telling her about Hermia's deception. Before that all happens, we go into town where we run into some Athenian players. They're called the Rude Mechanicals. I love that term. They're actors. Better yet, I would consider them community theater type actors. 
they are gathering together to rehearse a play, Pyramus and Thisbe, to be performed on the wedding night of Theseus and Hippolyta. The play has all been marked out. The parts have been given to all the different actors. However, one actor by the name of Bottom wants to play all the roles himself. And indeed, he seems to be very impressive to the other players. But the director and playwright insists, no, 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 Bottom will only play Pyramus, period. That's Peter Quince, by the way. But they all agree they're going to meet in the woods that night to practice their play. They want to rehearse in the woods because they're afraid if they do it in the city, they'll be mobbed by people who will be blown away by their performance. So... Off they go and agree to meet that night in the woods to rehearse. Now we go to the woods where we run into Puck, also known as Robin Goodfellow. Puck is busy, well, hitting on another fairy, telling her all about all the nasty things he does, changing shape, changing appearances, and frightening the mortals. Puck is very much a naughty, almost degenerate fairy. He likes to cause trouble and he likes to make mischief for the mortals. Before he can go too far with the fairy, however, the king of the fairies, Oberon, arrives and he's followed quickly behind by the queen of the fairies in her train and her name is Titania. Oberon and Titania are fighting. Oddly enough, they're fighting over a small Indian boy that Titania has brought with her to be her maid. And Oberon wants that boy to be in his train. As they fight, all kinds of things get brought up about infidelities that they've had with each other and their feelings of being ignored by each other. Finally, Titania says, I'm leaving. We will not be in your company any further. And she takes her fairies and heads to another part of the woods. Oberon calls over Puck and says, look, there's this flower. And I want you to go find this flower. It's a magical flower that when you squeeze the nectar into the eyes of someone while they're asleep, when they wake, the first person they see, they will be madly in love with. So... Puck flies off right away to try and find this flower. A minute he's gone, in comes Demetrius, followed by Helena. Demetrius is trying to find Hermia and stop Hermia and Lysander from getting away. Helena is running behind him saying, please let them go. I love you. Why won't you love me? Why can't I be your girl? And Demetrius says he wants nothing to do with her, pushes her off, and runs off into the woods. And Helena, poor girl, follows after him. Oberon, seeing all of this, decides to take pity on poor Helena and decides to make Demetrius fall in love with her. Puck comes back with the flower, and he gives some of the flower to Oberon, but keeps some himself because Oberon wants him to take that flower and squeeze it into this Athenian who is running through the woods so that when he wakes up in the morning, he will fall in love with the girl he is with. Puck promises that's what he'll do, and off he goes, while Oberon plans to squeeze the nectar into the eyes of sleeping Titania so that when she wakes up, whatever base or bizarre animal she sees, she'll fall madly in love with. He'll have a good joke on her expense. Off they go. Meanwhile, Lysander and Hermia have gotten lost in the woods. They don't know how to find their way through, and it's late, and they're tired. They lay down in the woods, and they try to sleep. Puck arrives, sees the two sleeping lovers, and thinks these are the Athenians he means. So he squeezes the nectar of the flower into Lysander's eyes. And he runs off. Enter Helena, who is now separated from Demetrius and looking for him and finds his sleeping Lysander and wakes him. When he wakes up, he immediately falls madly in love with Helena. Helena finds this frightening and runs away. Lysander races after her. Shortly after this, Hermia wakes up, finds Lysander gone, and decides to go into the woods to try to find him. Oberon, in the meantime, happens to come upon Demetrius. And Demetrius is still chasing after Hermia. Hermia wants nothing to do with him and thinks that he killed Lysander. So, when he falls asleep, Oberon charms Demetrius's eyes, thinking that Puck messed up and didn't do the right Athenian, which he didn't. Well, 
He leaves and enter Helena, who's being followed by Lysander. But when she wakes up Demetrius, he sees Helena and falls madly in love with her as well. So now both lovers are trying to get with Helena and leaving Hermia out in the cold. When Hermia comes upon the three of them, they chide her, push her away, call her little and ugly, and decide that they only want to be with Helena. Helena, in the meantime, thinks this is all a rude joke they're playing on her and that the author of this joke has to be Hermia. Hermia gets furious, says that Helena has destroyed her life, and decides she's going to attack him. And Helena, deciding to get away because, though she be little, she is fierce, she pushes her off and runs to the boys to help protect her. The boys, in the meantime, are still fighting over who deserves to have the beautiful Helena, and they agree to go into the woods and have a duel, and the survivor of that duel will get Helena, and they march off together to go fight. They're followed quickly behind by the two ladies. Meanwhile, the actors have gathered to rehearse their play Pyramus and Thisbe. And Bottom has been told by Peter Quince, the director, to go behind a break of woods and make his entrance. But when he goes back there, Puck decides to play a nasty little joke on him like he likes to do to all mortals. And he turns the head of Bottom into the head of a jackass. And Bottom comes back out, not knowing what has happened to him. And he scares the heck out of all of the other players. They all run off in the woods knowing that Bottom has been possessed and he stands transfixed and confused. Very close by, Titania is sleeping. Oberon drops a magic juice or nectar from the flowers into her eyes and runs off himself. The next moment, Titania wakes and who should she see but the jackass Bottom. And she falls madly in love with him, demands that all of her fairies attend to him, give him whatever he needs, and bring him to her. They do, and Bottom ends up with a very lovely and very powerful Titania stroking his ears. <laughs> it's a very funny scene. Well, soon Oberon comes upon the lovers and sees that they're about to fight and someone could get hurt. So he orders Puck to keep them away from each other, lead them into the woods and get them lost, and then remove the charm from Lysander's eye. Puck leads them apart so that they can't run into each other and fight, and the ladies follow after them, ending up very close to each other as well. Charm is removed from Lysander's eyes, and Oberon goes to Titania and removes the charm from her eyes. When they all wake up in the morning, it's a different world. She wants nothing to do with this jackass who's laying next to her, and she is quite angry at Oberon for the joke he has played on her. But they decide to leave and get ready for the wedding that is to be that day. Meanwhile, Theseus and his bride-to-be are on a hunt, along with Aegeus and a few other attendants, and moving through the wood. They come upon the four lovers sleeping on the ground. They ask what's going on, and the lovers wake up and can't really remember, because everything seems like a strange dream. Lysander, once again, pledges his love to Hermia, and Hermia refuses to have anyone but Lysander. But when Aegeus turns to Demetrius and says, hear what they say, Demetrius says it doesn't matter, I don't want Hermia anymore, I am in love with Helena. Theseus decides that's good enough, and declares there will be three marriages that day, and they all head back to town for the wedding. A wedding takes place, three couples join together in a reception hall, and who should come in but the rude mechanicals to perform their very bad version of Pyramus and Thisbe that ends our play. It is very funny, a wonderful way to bring all four stories full circle, and it ends beautifully, happily, and with a dance. That's the story of Midsummer's Night Dream. We're going to take a short break, let uh, some business get done here, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about what Midsummer Night's Dream means to Shakespeare's career. I'll see you on the other side.
and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here in KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, your host of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, and today we're talking about the magical play Midsummer's Night Dream. One of my favorites. I've actually had the pleasure of directing the show before, as well as I'm directing it again right now. And I'm going to tell you about that uh, at the end here, because I'm very excited. If you're in the Topeka area, you got a chance to see this show in a whole new way. So I'm pretty excited about that. Now, first of all, I want to talk about the basic background of the play. It was written probably around 1595, 96, in that whole neighborhood that we've been hanging out in, but it is slightly different in terms of the plays that's come before it, in that a lot of scholars put this as the beginning of Shakespeare's middle works. It's no longer considered an early play. It's really considered he's now a writer, full force. This is his strength. And you can see that in this play. And the reason why I say that is, first of all, he uses Ovid, um, Metamorphos, again, as as a source material. He also uses the Canterbury Tales. He also uses a lot of old wives' tales and superstitions that existed in Elizabethan England at the time. But the other thing I find fascinating about it is he uses his previous work as source materials. You are seeing elements of previous plays in here. Even the mention of Pyramus and Thisbe is a short play that he uses uh, by the Rude Mechanicals. One of the source plays he used for Romeo and Juliet. But this time, he treats it in a very comic manner. He does a whole 180 on that story and puts it into a very, very funny play. He also uses his mistaken identity, a ploy he already used in Comedy of Errors, but he uses it so much more effectively here. Here you have four different stories, four very different stories, that he ties together quite effortlessly, beautifully. They feed into each other, into a consistent and cohesive play. This is the work of a man who knows what he's doing now. This is a man in his own skin who knows how to write and knows how to develop a story and develop a complete idea. It's it's great. And it really shows the beginning of what will become the greatest master of the English language to me. The play itself might have had a very different reaction than we have it to it in contemporary times. First of all, it probably wasn't written for the theater. It was probably written as a gig. Many historians believe it was written for a royal wedding. There's a couple of royal weddings that have been put together that they say it could have been for this wedding or it could have been for that wedding. They're around that time. That means this play was performed at court, probably before the Queen. It was published in 1600. That's that's pretty quick. Now, consider when you memorize a play like Shakespeare's company had to, they would then keep it for a while and because it's a lot of work to memorize it and play it in their theater. And they obviously did according to the notes. So it's very likely that this was performed in the theater at some point. They, they just would have. But they kind of rushed us to publication around 1600. Matter of fact, it was mentioned in the title page of the first quarto that it was published in that it had been performed various sundry of time, meaning occasionally, not often. It could very well be that to Shakespeare's company, this was a gig. It was written for a wedding, and it really isn't a play that stands on its own. But contemporary audiences love it. And we love it for a variety of reasons. It's funny, too. It it, it was one of the first plays that came back after the theaters were closed by Parliament in 1642, opened again in around uh, 1668. And in that time, it was one of the first plays that came back. And Samuel Pepys, who's a diarist that theater people hang on to because he went to a lot of theater and wrote about it, said when he saw Midsummer's Night Dream that it was one of the stupidest plays he's ever seen in his life. So there was a very different feeling about the play before, but if there was any play built for the modern spectacle theater, 
It's Midsummer's Night Dream. It's perfect. You can add all kinds of effects to it, magic flying and disappearing antics, but Shakespeare's audience really didn't need that. They had an expression, let's go hear a play. Not, let's go see a play, let's go hear a play. So Shakespeare didn't need spectacle when he was doing this play. He relied on his language. When Oberon says, I will stand here invisible, the audience would go, oh, he's invisible now. They didn't have to see him disappear. They didn't have to see him go behind a secret wall. No, he just, they accepted the fact, invisible until he tells us otherwise. And Oberon's able to walk around and view the young lovers very easily without them ever seeing him. And the audience totally took it. But here's the thing about this play. The play's language is sublime. It's beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that it very quickly became a favorite for being turned into ballets, into operas, into musical numbers. Much of Shakespeare's work has been turned into ballets and, and operas, but Midsummer is just plain ideal for it. The music of Frederick Mendelssohn's is unbelievable. Anyway, getting off topic. The play was published in 1600, and there is a second quarto that it was published again around uh, 1619, I believe. And this second quarto is considered to be less complete, more imperfect than the first quarto. And it was the first quarto publication that was used to incorporate the play in the folio that was produced in 1623 after Shakespeare's death. It was definitely a play that his players wanted to include. It had really some of his greatest language, but it was probably not a play that they produced all that often. A bit of note on the source material, though, I want to touch on is the fact that this show takes place in Athens, but the Athens in this play looks an awful lot like Elizabethan England. There were very many festivals to mark the beginning of spring, and spring was a chance of renewal, that chance of new love, and that's what all is based in this play. Even though the play itself takes place May 1st and the festivals would have been earlier than, than, than that, this is a perfect opportunity to celebrate new love and a marriage on May 1st with Midsummer's Night Dream. But here we see Shakespeare using language at its best, its most lyrical. He creates some of the most amazing spells and vivid imagery with everything that he does with Midsummer's Night Dream. It reads so beautifully because it is so beautiful and you get swept up and caught up in the story. But this play also gives us a glimpse inside the working relationship of Shakespeare's acting company. And I want to explain that in this way. There were a lot of great actors working the Elizabethan stage, but Shakespeare's number one actor was Richard Burbage. Burbage played all the big roles, from the teenage Romeo to the dying old Lear. Burbage was top dog at the theater. By all accounts, he was quite an amazing actor. Probably didn't hurt that his father and brother also owned the theater, but he was also an incredibly gifted actor, and Shakespeare wrote major roles for him in mind. Well, another member of the company at this time was a comedian by the name of Will Kemp, and Will Kemp was phenomenal. He was becoming a star in his own right. He was known for his comic jigs and really comic interpretation of characters. Shakespeare writes Bottom for him, and Bottom becomes a classic right away. But even by writing Bottom for him, Shakespeare spends time trying to make Burbage feel better about the fact that he's probably not going to be the standout character in this play. There was a term for actors in that period where they were referred to as shadows. They weren't really the people they played, they were shadows of the people they were played, and they were often called shadow people. Several times in this play, Shakespeare refers to the character of Oberon as the king 
of shadows. The Lord of shadows. Saying you're the number one guy. Don't forget, you're the best. And even at the end of the play, Puck seems to apologize in case anyone thought the play was too silly and says, if we shadows have offended. There is just really a a belief, I think, on Shakespeare's part that nobody's really going to appreciate this play. It's transitory. It's not going to last long. I'm doing it for this wedding, and that's about it. Yet, oddly enough, here it is today, one of the biggest plays from his canon. The one that a lot of people learn in high school, one of the first that they read, and it's so beautifully written and so well documented. And for many people, it's their favorite. It's the play that they are most touched by Shakespeare. And why not? It's young love. It ends so happily. And it ties all these stories together so absolutely beautifully. By the way, Will Kemp goes on to play a very important role in the next few plays that Shakespeare writes when he plays the role of Falstaff. Falstaff immediately becomes an overnight sensation. Everywhere, people love the character of Falstaff. And it increases not only the wellness of the company, but the reputation of Will Kemp, which leads him eventually to become such a big star, he demands too much of the profit and leaves the company. You're going to hear more about this in the coming plays, because we're about to enter into Shakespeare's next tetralogy, the Henry IV tetralogy that ends with Henry V. And that starts next week. And this is the thing that I wanted to share with you. I am very proud that last fall, I started working with a group of very talented female actors, and we started working on an all-female production of Midsummer's Night Dream. We started last fall, hoping to try and do it sometime before winter set in, but then there was COVID, and the numbers were going up, and the fall got cold very, very fast. So we decided to put it on hold. So as the weather's turned warmer, and we got to get together again, and the COVID numbers are going down, people are getting the shot, we've regrouped. And the Lady Shakes Company, reforming and ready to put together our first production, A Midsummer's Night Dream. It's an all-female cast and absolutely some of the greatest actors in our community. They are fantastic. And we've been rehearsing in a backyard, a basketball court. But soon, we'll be able to move the show to various parks. Our plan is to try and do a one-hour version of the show. I've really, really cut it down. We're going to do a one-hour show in a park for free. Maybe pass a hat for donations for the company. We don't know. But our hope is to just introduce ourselves to the community and let everybody see how wonderful and approachable Shakespeare can be. This is my second all-female production of Shakespeare. I did Twelfth Night about two years ago with many of the same ladies that I'm blessed with working with right now. And I'm really excited that we're going to be able to present Midsummer's Night Dream. I won't be able to stay with the company because I'm really hoping I'll be able to go back to my job very soon. And if I go back to TCT, I'll be kept very, very busy, I'm sure. It's my hope, though, that Lady Shakes continues to produce works here in Topeka. Their their goal is to do a lot of classic work, not necessarily all Shakespeare, but certainly Shakespeare as well as Greek drama and other things like that, but also do it with a very open and gender-free feeling for people, actors of all ages and all sexes. Check out Lady Shakes. We're planning to do it around May 29th this year. Uh, We haven't set a park yet where we're going to be, but we really hope when we announce it, all of you will come out to see us and celebrate a Midsummer's Night Dream returning to a park near you. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. I hope you had a great time. It was my pleasure bringing it to you, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. And remember, slide me a message or let me know what you think about the shows at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. 
And until next time, keep it barred to the bone. Seven Eight Five Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now, and we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at seven eight five live dot com. And thanks for tuning in.